Hello. Can you hear me? There we go. Okay. All right. Better? All right. Excellent. Um, I'm sure the audio and sermon audio people are going to be appreciating that little little mic check going on there. So, well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Historical Theology Part 4. Um, of course, as everybody knows, the, the big class that we're working on is systematic theology, uh, which is the um, taking the study of God and things associated with God, um, placing them in the categories so that we can kind of have a, a systematic under, understanding of them, uh, specifically taking the full witness of Scripture and letting that um, uh, inform what it is that we believe about, about certain topics. So you could also call it topical theology if you wanted to although I don't think anybody calls it that. So um, a few weeks ago, I guess it was four weeks ago, uh, Ken came in and did a, gave us kind of an example of biblical theology where he went through uh, the, the, the theme of the Messiah, starting with uh, Genesis chapter 3, and then followed that a little ways and kind of explaining that, you know, this is what biblical theology is, and this is the, the way it works, and this is um, kind of how we use it. And so after that, um, I said, well, you know what? It would be a really good idea since we're, we've been talking a lot about Christology to go through some historical theology, which is kind of the third, third kind of theology that we, uh, that we have. And so historical theology matches up with church history and tells us what, it's kind of the study of what people believed about these certain systematic topics or, or categories um, of theology throughout, you know, the last 2,000 years. So, you know, like I told you last week, I thought I was going to be able to, to kind of go through, um, you know, 2,000 years of Christology in a week, but here we are on our fourth week, and I think we're going to actually, believe it or not, wrap it up today. Um, but I think it's a very, I think, I think it's a very fruitful exercise in going through um uh, historical theology, because one of the things it does is it helps us to, um, uh, one of the, the concepts that we've, we've, we've uncovered is that our orthodoxy, our right understanding of Christian theology is often driven by heresy. And what that means is we may have a, a simple view, a legitimate view, of something, of some, some theological topic, like the person of Christ, but then um, someone comes along and puts a spin on it, and it's something that is found to be untrue. And so the church, as a, you know, the church universal, responds to that and responds to heresy. And so what happens is heresy actually helps us to understand theology because it helps us to recognize what's not true. I know that sounds kind of weird, but that, that's the way it's played out for the last 2,000 years. So, um, so anyway, I, I think we're probably going to do maybe an abbreviated version, but we're probably going to do this same exercise when we get into salvation, otherwise known as uh, soteriology, the study of salvation, um, in, the next, in the next phase. So... Um, no further ado, we'll hop in and we'll, we'll do a very, very quick review. There's a handful of folks that haven't been here for a while, so I'm going to go ahead and 
do a little bit more extended of a, a review than, than I'd anticipated. Um, but I still think we'll be able to wrap up today. And then next week, we won't have Sunday school. Um, we'll pick up the following week, which is what, the, I think that's the first Sunday of December, right? And we'll, um, we'll pick up with uh, the study of salvation. So Father, thank you once again for this morning. Uh, thank you for this time of the week when we can all come together and uh, to, to get together uh, the, uh, lo as a local congregation and to study your word and to study, study you. Um, Father, not as some um, remote or dis detached academic topic, but as, as a real person and as um, things that have uh, true meaning and impact in our lives and, and the world around us. Father, help us to understand um, uh, truth today and, um, and just help any um, false notions or anything like that just be, um, just be disregarded. Father, we love you. We trust you. Uh, help us to glorify you in everything that we think and say and do. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a little bit of review. So, the first thing we'll do is very quickly go through the basic biblical tenets of, of Christology, or who, who Christ is. So we have the, the and, and it's helped by, so there's four biblical principles that helps us to understand uh, the person of Christ, um, what we call the hypostatic union, or the personal union of uh, two essences, both God and man, um, in one person. And so there's a little um, symbol um, drawing that we can assemble to help us kind of kind of remember this. So the H, what does the H signify? His humanity. He is uh, fully human. D, fully divine. What's the line mean? The 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 human and divine uh, essences or, or um, elements of who he is. Um, are distinct and not conflated or confused. And then the circle, that they're unified in the one person of Christ. So God is both fully human, fully divine. Uh, those two essences are not, um, are, are not confused, nor are they um, combined, combined together, but they are unified in one person. So if somebody... Going back, looking at the heresies, uh, the folks who de de uh, denied the humanity of Christ were the Docetists, who believed that Jesus just appeared um, to be here in the flesh. They actually denied the incarnation. They said uh, no spirit being would ever uh, come down and actually be a person. Uh, be, I'm sorry, be a be a human. And so um, the Docetists denied. Uh, Christ's humanity. And then Apollinarianism, Apollinarius was a heretic who said that, uh, that Jesus did not have a divine will. He had a divine body and he had divine, I'm sorry, he had a human body, he had human emotions, but he had a divine will. And so in, in that sense, he was not fully human. And so he was um, condemned as a heretic as well. In terms of the flip side of that, the Ebionists, um, seems like they kind of came out of the Judaizers, and so they were looking for kind of a Messiah that was not divine, but strictly human. And so this idea of, of um, Ebion 
It comes from a, a word indicating uh, poor. So it's, the thought is that they had a poor view of who Jesus was. And then you have the adoptionists who believe that Jesus was just a, a human who was adopted by God and given the power of God. And, um, and that generally they think that that happened at his, his baptism. So they were heretics as well. And then there's Eutychianism, which um, what Eutyches did was dissolve the, the distinction between the two. And he, he kind of had um, Jesus as being part, you know, kind of human and divine natures weren't, weren't distinct. They were just kind of blended together. And then Nestorianism um, denied that uh, he, they, he actually separated the uh, difference in the, hu- or the humanity and, and the deity. He um, came, it came out of a, a, a label or a title for, for Christ um, as the Theo- I'm sorry, for Mary as the Theotokos. So what people were saying was that, that Mary was the Theotokos or the God-bearer. And the story has had a problem with that, which I kind of struggle with it a little bit too, but in the, in the final analysis, what they did is they, they looked at it and they said, um, Mary carried God. You know, She didn't um, create God, but she carried God in, in her womb because she carried Jesus. And, if, if, and the, the idea is if you don't believe that she carried God, now what you're doing is separating um, Jesus, uh, separating the humanity and, and, the, and the deity. So this is what we end up with is um, that little symbol is the um, kind of the orthodox um, understanding of Christology. So in the Middle Ages, not a whole lot happened in the Middle Ages. I, for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of go through the Middle Ages and the Reformation. Um, there were some, I'll say, intramural debates um, that we're going to end up talking about when we get into the um, when we get into the um, the Lord's Supper, probably January or February time frame, because the Lord's Supper, um, kind of the big controversy, was between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, and really that controversy it does boil down to Christology but everybody knows it in the context of the Lord's Supper, and so that's when we're going to talk about it. So if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, don't worry about it. You will. All right, so modern era, we talked a little bit about Gottfried Tomasius. Um, he had this, idea, this um, notion of kenosis, which is a biblical term. It's found in Philippians 2, verses, uh, I think it's in verse 6, where Jesus emptied himself. And what um, Gottfried said was, the, he, uh, he, he defined it when Jesus emptied himself as the exchange of one form, existence, form of existence for another. He said that Christ emptied himself of basically his deity, and I'm sorry, yeah, of his deity and assumed uh, humanity. And so that, um, that, of course, is, you know, contrary to the orthodox teaching of the um, of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. So why would somebody believe something like this? It's they read Philippians 2, they see this word kenosis, which means emptying, and they have just a deviant or um, divergent idea of, of what that means. Okay. So to the new stuff. Um, actually, kind of the new stuff. So any questions so far? I know 
We've been yapping up here for a few minutes. Any questions? No? Uh, let's see. So what we have to do to really understand what's going on in the modern era, we actually have to take a step back and talk about philosophy for a few minutes, okay? Um, because it really does have a bearing, and you'll, you'll understand, I think, by the end of the class um, why. But it's got a very significant bearing. Okay, so what are the two ways that philosophers say we gain knowledge? What's that? Teaching and experience. Teaching and experience? I was going to say reason and experience. Reason and experience? Okay. Um, okay, good. Observation. Anybody else? Okay, good. I think those are all pretty darn close uh, to the words I was going to throw out there. One is sense perception. There's some people believe that, uh, some people actually believe that the only way to acquire knowledge is through sense perception. You have to see it, taste it, touch it, kind of, kind of that sort of thing. We call these people empiricists, okay? And of course, you can't acquire knowledge through, through sense perception, but an empiricist, a pure empiricist, will say that that's the only way, okay? The other way is through reason or rationality. We call these people rationalists. So rationalists believe that the only way to true knowledge is to actually reason, okay? Um, this has been a, ever since the beginning of philosophy, um, you know, several hundred years before Christ, this has always been, these two schools have always been kind of at odds. And then um, in the late 18th century, there was a guy named Immanuel Kant who kind of, kind of synthesized the two together, but we're not going to go into, into him. Okay, so what is missing from this? If we have sense perception, we have reason, what is missing? How, how else can we... What's that? Revelation, exactly. Divine revelation, right? And that's the key to understanding where um, uh, secular philosophers go astray, is that they, they don't believe in divine revelation. But the question is why? Why don't they believe in, in divine revelation? And it boils down to what they believe about God, okay? So generally, um, a, a secular philosopher will either believe that he does not exist at all, so that those would be an atheistic philosophers, or he is not a person. He's just a force, you know? And actually think of the force in Star Wars, kind of that sort of thing. You're, you're welcome, Monica. Um, so they, um, but, but this force, of course, is impersonal. It's not a person. So, and then most often, uh, the world or creation is, is God or is a part of God, okay? There's some folks called panentheists. Uh, well, pantheists believe that the, the world, everything that exists, the whole universe is God. And then panentheists believe that the physical universe is like God's body, and then there's a uh, there's a like a spiritual soul. Yes, sir. Text except uh, textbook knowledge. Well, and that's a great question. And if you think about it, 
um, slight, slight sidebar. Thank you, Dan. Um, so if you think about it, if they do accept textbook knowledge, then what are they doing? What are they doing? They're relying on authority. They're, they're, they're saying that the person that they're reading, if they, if they believe what the person said, and they count that as knowledge, then they're not actually conducting those experiments themselves. They're actually, what, trusting an authority who probably has in turn conducted those experiments themselves, right? And so, um, so there is this kind of appeal to authority, which, oh, by the way, that's one of the things that we talk about with divine revelation. When we read the Bible, we're appealing to authority. When we talk about the apostles, they were, they were individuals who were there. They're speaking with authority, being you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, um, so good question. Every, I think everybody's pretty inconsistent when it comes to, um, to knowledge. Because even the sense, if you're a strict empiricist, you have to use some reason. You know? and, then, and, and that's a, a, a part of the problem. Is, and, and then if you're a, a rationalist, well, where does your, where's your beginning, you know, what do you take in as input other than just dreaming stuff up in your, in your mind? Yes, sir. I'm just thinking about that, that last point about uh, people believe that the, the world is God. Mm -hmm. You know, we enjoyed um, uh, Avatar, the movie mm -hmm. that came out. It was, yeah. it was an interesting movie. The, yeah. the, the graphics were incredible. But then there's that part when Sigourney Weaver's character dies. Yeah. And then the earth, you know, consumes her. Absolutely. And the image is that very thing right yep. there. And then and the, the loss, I got lost. At that yeah, point. yeah. But, uh, but that was clearly a teaching moment, you know, Hollywood yep. was teaching. A absolutely. That is full on what's called Eastern mysticism. We're going to talk about mysticism here in a few minutes, but, but you're absolutely right. Um, So, so here's another question. If the world is everything, is God, um, then is anything really God? Right? So a pantheist would, would say that, that you, are, you are God. You know, you are part of God. Just like we're all part of God. And ultimately we're, you know, a part of one kind of unified whole. It's called monism. Okay? Um, and then the, like the, the Buddhists... Uh, believe that you 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 are distinct from the whole in your mind because you have desires in this world, and when you give up those desires, then you you enter into kind of the oneness with everything else, and that's called called nirvana, and essentially you lose your identity. So anyway, uh, Richard Dawkins. Is, anybody, you guys know who Richard Dawkins is? He's probably about the most famous atheist in, in the world right now. Um, or at least he was a, a few years ago. He, um, interesting guy. But um, he, he said that pantheism, that is, that everything is God, is just sex, sexed up atheism. And what he means by that is, you know, a lot of atheists, they, they look in the world and they don't believe in a God, they don't believe in spiritual beings, they just believe that, you know, they believe in naturalism. Everything is the physical universe, right? But there's this little voice in the back of their head that has this desire for something spiritual, something bigger, 
because they know they can't find significance um, in, in the natural world. And so what they begin to do is sort of synthesize this, their own significance, right? Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, who has never had an original, do you guys know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is? Yeah. He's never had an original thought in his life, as far as I can tell, um, parroted, you know, some stuff that, that Carl Sagan um, said about, you know, you and I are made of stardust, you know? We're made, you know, and they talk about how, uh, you know, stars exploded and then the earth was created out of this, this matter and, um, and then, you know, there was evolution and then we formed and then now you and I are walking around and you look in the stars, we're the same as them, you know? Um, and, and they said, we are, are literally stardust. And then they pause, this dramatic pause for you to go, oh, wow, that's amazing. But you know what? If there is no God, if there's no spirit world, if there is no real eternity, then who cares, right? Who cares what you're made of? If there's no God, who cares really about anything, you know? And so, um, you know, where, where does the significance come from? And so that's what Richard Dawkins, when he's talking about pantheism, he's like, if, if everything is God, then, then nothing is God. And so pantheism and atheism, I don't know, I think they're just two sides of the same coin, really. Hope that made sense, yeah? Okay. So, if God is not a person, God is everything, it's non-personal, does a non-person do things with, a, um, with purpose in mind? Right? Where does purpose come from? It comes from a will. And a will is strictly a human thing. You decide to do things, right? So if you think about the world being God, and people talk about you know, the laws of physics, the laws of physics don't decide anything. They just kind of are what they are, right? They, they, they describe something. They don't do anything. Um, and so a non-person does not have a purpose in mind. So how does that impact questions concerning things like the meaning of life? Right? So as a Christian, if somebody asks you, what is the meaning of life, how would you respond? It's not rhetorical. Okay, Westminster Confession, I love it. Um, to glorify the, the uh, chief end of man, or the meaning of life, is to glorify God and to, live him for, uh, to, to love him forever. Okay? That is a great summation of, of what it is, why we're here. God put us here for a purpose, and it's to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And so, um, but what happens is, outside of that Christian worldview, when you get into these um, more atheistic worldviews, um, secular views, that sort of thing, where they don't see God as a person, and so we're not creatures, we're just because we weren't created, we just happened to be here. And they look at a question like the meaning of life, all of a sudden they have to dissect this thing down to an absurd degree. So a few years ago, um, I decided to drill down on Westminster's um, answer to that. And I, so I wanted to see what philosophy and psychology and all these different um, uh, things said about it. And the first thing they do is 
in, with the phrase, the meaning of life, is the first thing they do is they say, okay, well, what do you mean by life? Okay? Because the meaning of life does not just mean what is the purpose of Nikki's life or what is the purpose of Hannah's life. It is what is the purpose of life, okay? As well as the individual, but it's life as a whole and, and, or all of humanity. And so the idea is um, to these secular folks is there is no meaning of life. There's only meaning of your own life, okay? Then they say, oh, you know what? We got to hit this, this um, of. It's because there's no meaning of life because that's something that's outside of you. If something's talking about the meaning of your life, so what you have to do is find meaning in life, right? So now they've, they've changed one of the words. They're, they say that the meaning of life is a nonsensical question, and so they say, what is the meaning in life? And guess what? It's up to each individual to determine for yourself what is meaningful to you and why, essentially why, you're, actually there is no question to why you're here, but you can invent your own meaning. Okay, then they get into, well, the, there is no the, okay, it's a. So, and then meaning, they break into, and actually this part I do like, meaning they break into uh, three different ideas. What is the purpose? What is the significance? And then what is the coherence? And that last one is like, how does your life fit in kind of with everything else? Okay, and the cool part is, is if you, take that from a Christian perspective and you look to the Bible for those answers, you've got a sermon series that can probably last the rest of the, rest of the year at least. Okay? Um, and so I, I actually, I love that question because it's, it's like it's the foundation of, of everything. You know? When you dig into the Bible, you, you know, asking the meaning of life, you land on Christ. And then from Christ, it takes you back to why you're here to begin with, with, with creation. And every, but everything points to, everything points to Christ. Um, so how does this impact questions concerning uh, things like the meaning of life? Well, we just, we just talked about that. It's um, radical, and it's sad. It's really sad reading a lot of this literature because it's what I call wishful, wishful thinking. All right, so can you have a relationship with a non-person? No. Yes, but it's a distinctly different type of relationship when you have with a person. It's okay. an impersonal relationship. Okay. Right? Like I could have a relationship with a dog. Yeah. But it's not the same as a relationship I have with a human. Mm -hmm. And it certainly wouldn't provide the kind of meaning to life that a relationship with a person would provide. Okay, so animals, it's like we have to set aside for kind of a special case. <laughs> Are they persons or whatever? Because if they're not person, you know. Not soul and, and, and all of that, right? I don't want to get into all of that. But, um, but the idea is, is they do have personality. You know, we got a boxer that's 100% personality, a whole lot of personality. And, um, and, you know, and, you know, you can grow attached to them and kind of that sort of thing. So you can have a relationship with, with you know, at least a boxer. I, I don't know about a, a Rottweiler, but... Um, Nikki and Dan love Rottweiler, so. Um, but, but like a chair, can you have a relationship with a chair? You know, no. Um, you can use a chair, 
you know, and I, I suppose technically that constitutes a relationship, <laughs> how you relate to it, but it's not a relationship, right? Not in the sense that uh, it's a personal relationship. So how do you get to know a non-person? You have to study it, right? You have to study it. Observation, reason, right? Um, mostly probably observation. Um, but does a, a non-person reveal itself? Like a chair is a non-person. Yeah, inanimate object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that's not a person. I'd, I'd, call, a, I'd call a plant a non-person too. Yes, ma'am. You're upset about the Rottweiler comment, aren't you? No, no, no. Okay. From time to time, we watch a show called Intervention. Uh huh. Interesting, and I'll see a lot of heroin addicts talk about having a relationship with their needle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting, and it's just kind of coming to mind when how can you have a relationship with a non-person? Yeah. When that non-person, coffee, Mm -hmm. heroin, impacts your behavior, your perception of yeah. Reality. Yeah, absolutely. It's like it's almost like you're animating the needle or something, right. or that whatever that thing is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. What's that? Personifying. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, so how do you get to know a non-person? Well, this is where mysticism comes comes in. So let's talk about mysticism for a minute. In mysticism, God speaks directly to the soul. Okay, now, most, well, not most, but a lot of mystics, if not most mystics, um, are pantheistic. But we've already said that this, this world, if the world is God, then, you know, it doesn't have a personality. And so, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you interact with it, right? And so there's this, fuzzy thing out there that if you ask me how that works, I, I, have, I have no idea, right? But do Christians believe that God speaks directly to the soul? No? Yeah? Okay, yes. So you said no, and I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> yes, of course, of course God speaks directly to the soul. But in what context? It's the Holy Spirit. Say regeneration, it's, uh, well, let's see what Charles Hodge has to say. Um, it says, the Spirit of God, by his illuminating influence, gives uh, believers a knowledge of the truths objectively revealed in the Scriptures, which is peculiar, certain, and saving. Let's break down a couple of words here, so, or a few words. Illuminating. Can somebody tell me what illumination is? To, sh- to shed light on. Okay, how is divine illumination... Distinct from align, uh, divine revelation. That's brilliant. Divine, um, divine revelation or revelation uh, is something that's already there, and illumination is like shining a light on it, right? Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> yeah, what he said. Um, yeah, so the idea is, is God has revealed in the things that have been made divine power, eternal attributes, um, or eternal power, divine attributes, things of that nature. You can go to Romans 1, verses 18 and following for that. 
So God has revealed those things, right? And they are clearly perceived, but they are those, those ideas are suppressed by us in unrighteousness. And that suppresses like you're pushing down like, um, like on a spring, putting a force against something. So we're denying this. And so what divine illumination does is it's like it forces us to open our eyes. He, he reveals it in our heart. He opens our heart and then, and then gives us that knowledge, gives us... It, he overcomes that suppression, and we accept the, these these truths. And that can only be done by by the Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. So, my, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, but my view of regeneration is uh-huh. a change in capability in the human okay. in the human spirit. We'll say or right, human soul, and so that's distinct from from other things that will happen. That, that right. God has to change us before any of this, the things that you right. were just talking about can right. ever have an impact because right. we're incapable right. We're incapable of receiving right. any of that kind of information. Right. So the regeneration fits in there. In, in yeah. Charles Hodge's line, regeneration fits in there somewhere. Yes, yeah. As a precursor to anything positive happening in, in mankind. Right. And so what, we're, that, what you're talking about there when you have uh, regeneration and, and um, believing and that sort of thing. That's, uh, that's all the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And we're going to get into the particulars of that, um, you know, in January-ish. No, you know what, maybe next month, prob- probably December. Um, so anyway, but, but you're right. Uh, so regeneration refers to um, regenerating or basically giving us a, a new beginning, a, a, making us a new creation. And so he, he doesn't just, you could think of it this way, he doesn't just change our heart, he gives us a new heart, you know, because you're no longer the, the person that you were. Um, you're a, you're a, new, um, a, a new creature. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. I'm sorry, one more time? Yeah. The what of the Lord's people? Oh, the prophets? Um, when you say it, it ignores them. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Okay, so, um, right, because there are, that's a great point, actually. Yeah, so what if he just um, asked, he said, um, uh, basically the claim here is that you don't have divine illumination outside of, um, outside of the scriptures, right? But the point is, is that the prophets were actually the, the means by which that script, script, scripture was created. And so the idea would be, yes, that's a very special revelation to them, um, to his prophets and his apostles, that uh, where they actually created scripture, right? So it's a, but it's a very special thing. It doesn't occur anymore. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. What's that? Well, when you throw an ism on it, that's the problem, right? Is it mystical? Yeah, it is. Because we don't understand it, and it is God directly speaking to the heart. But it's also very, it's, it's different. It's a special case, and it's not an ism, right? When we, like, for example, so let's talk about isms for a second. So we're rational, but we're not rationalists, 
right? There is a mystical aspect to Christianity, but it's not mysticism, right? There's a big difference when you bring in these ideas and then you uh, throw an ism on, on it. Is that cool? Okay. Yes, yes, ma'am. I was going to say, it depends a little bit, I think, on your theory of how God communicates the scriptures to the prophets. Yes. Like there are some times in scripture mm-hmm. where you get the prophets who say, the oracle of the Lord right. came to me, and thus said the Lord, right. and it's like, quote, I mean, you know, with yeah, all quotation yeah. marks in Hebrew, but like the original language, you know, uh, that you're obviously switching voice to that, and mm-hmm. so that leaves a lot of room, I think, for dictation right. theory. Yeah. There was a lot of a voice from God, right, and right. then you have other places where it's like, people say, I was carried along by the Spirit, is that right. I was carried along by the right. Spirit, right. you have Moses sort of writing a yep. narrative about things that happened. Mm-hmm. Or someone writing down Job's story right. hundreds of years later. Yeah. So it kind of depends on your, you know, if you take like a strict dictation theory, then there's no mysticism in that. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But even with that, if you have um, like dreams and visions, there's lots of dreams and visions where, you know, a dream is you're asleep, a vision you're you're awake. So if God is speaking to you in, in, in a dream and give you, giving you the essentially the, the words of Scripture, that would be kind of that, that mystical thing. And again, don't take when I say mystical as being related to mysticism. It's a bit, big difference. Uh, actually, Ify and then, and then Caleb. So you can, if you're afraid of the ism, yeah. just counter it by putting divine in front. Okay. Divine mysticism. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. That's fair, fair. Yes, sir. I, I, would, I would just kind of point out a distinction that throughout history, lots of people have claimed that a deity yes. told them something prophets is it actually came true yeah the proof is yeah pudding. yeah absolutely Everything that the prophets prophesied came true actually did come from did, god right. yeah absolutely 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 uh cool anybody else yes sir just going back to this statement yeah the, the more i read it the more the more interesting it is because yeah. charles hodge says the spirit of god by his illuminating influence yes yeah. believers yeah yeah a knowledge of the truths yeah. in the scriptures, which is peculiar. So the knowledge yeah. that he gives us is peculiar, certain, and saving. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it, I mean, it seems like an incomplete, and maybe if it, I knew what was bad, yeah. three dots. Yeah, 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 that, that's uh, fair. So Char- Charles Hodge is an amazing theologian. Um, I don't know that there's, other than, something like baptism. I, I don't know that there's a whole lot that we would disagree with him on in terms of, because um, he would be a very, very Calvinistic. He was from the old Princeton school. Um, this section is strictly on mysticism, right? Now, he's got a big chunk on when he gets into soteriology, and he goes through the ordo salutis and all of that, yeah. So this is just a comment that he's making. It's not meant to be a whole treatment of, of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Everybody good? Cool, all right. Uh, Okay, so mysticism, another Charles Hodge. Mysticism assumes that God, by his immediate intercourse with the soul, reveals through the feelings and by means, or in the way of intuitions, divine truth independently of the outward teaching of his word. And that is uh, this inward light and not the scriptures, which we are to follow. So, um, I thought I had a different question here. Um, can you think of any 
examples where somebody that's a professing Christian is receiving something outside of the scriptures and it, you would count it as mysticism? God put it on my heart? Yep. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Of what? Um, so it, I would say it's related if you're talking about strictly in the spiritual gifts category, but what they would be pretty much very closely intertwined. Yeah. But this is more of a, um, like, let me give you an example, kind of the one that was in the back of my mind. How many people have seen on the news where, you know, in Mexico or South America or somewhere, there was a statue of Mary um, that started crying? Or there was a crucified Jesus where blood started kind of coming out of, uh, you know, out of his, his wounds, that sort of thing, right? Those are mystical encounters because... And here's kind of one of the dangers is how do you interpret something like that, okay? And we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, but so how, how do you interpret? How is God glorified through Mary, a statue of Mary crying? What does that mean? Is that encouragement? Or is she crying because she's seen your behavior and you're, she thinks you're a jerk, right? How do you interpret it? It's, it's up to you. And that's the danger of besides being untrue, <laughs> that's one of the big dangers of mysticism is how do you, how do you interpret this stuff? It's, it's what you do is you search for your own meaning. And so we're right back to um, almost like the secular folks we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, so does this look any different than the atheist who searches their own heart for truth? Right? Because the idea there is, is if... If you've got a direct connection where God is revealing all these things to your heart and he manipulates your feelings and things of that nature, but there's no rudder, there's no true north for that, then it's called scripture, then how do you interpret these things? You know, And then from the outside looking in, what's the difference between that and an atheist just kind of searching their own feelings and coming up with their own ideas? It looks the same, because ultimately it is the same. And there's the examples of Christian mysticism question that I was thinking of. All right. Um, so whether natural or, nat or, or supernatural is one's personal ex uh, person is one person's experience any more valid than any other anybody else's? Right. So if um, <laughs> I remember there was a. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. What's that? The experience of the supernatural experience of the yeah. prophets would be more valid than. Okay. I, I agree. I agree. Um, in modern era, where there, there's no more prophets, um, so would one person's experience in this mysti mystical state be any more valid than anybody else's, right? I, I, there was a story of uh, the first church we went to was a big church. There was a like an associate pastor there that was from Tampa, and he tells the story of when he was looking to move to Houston and take the job in Houston. He had everybody in Houston coming to him and saying, "The Lord put it in my heart to tell you that you need to move to Houston." 
And then the people in Tampa were all telling him, the Lord put it on my heart to tell you that um, you need to stay in Tampa. So the Lord was putting a lot of stuff on a lot of people's hearts, and they were, like, not consistent with one another, right? And so, um, so when you get into a situation like that, how do you measure which one is true? You know, theoretically, assuming that you, you thought it was valid, how would you know which way? You know, this poor guy, he would be torn. Maybe he'd have to commute back and forth how, or something. How do you know which one? Like, actually, how, how does no, it work out? No, no, no. the way it actually works yes. is the one that they want to do is the one that's the more true. Yes, yeah. Well, that's a good point, yeah. The one that they want to do is the one that has to be true, right? Yes. I was going to say, I think one way Christians have kind of gotten around this issue historically has been to appeal to church authority or church councils. Right. I know in our context, maybe we see more of this in, yeah. our, in our evangelical and Protestant circles with uh-huh. the word on my heart or felt yeah, yeah. prompted by the spirit language. Yeah. But it's not a new issue, you yeah. know, even in high church circles, the same kind of uh, mystical tendencies or, or desires to have this sort of special knowledge from God come, but their touchstone in addition to scripture, would mm-hmm. be a much heavier uh, emphasis on church authority or church right. councils. Right. What? Well, very good point. Good point. Yeah. Uh, so what does this idea of direct, you know, nobody has real authority. So what does it say about the Bible? It put, kind of puts the Bible in that category too, Right. Because if you have a direct communication with God in a mystical way, then what do you need his word for? And then let's assume that his word is held up to some extent. You can kind of interpret it however you want to. It's up to you. It becomes very, very subjective. And so how does this apply to Christology? Specifically, we're, now we're coming back to kind of the issue at hand is who is Christ and how does how does this way of thinking apply to, to, to what we believe about Christ? And so there's the idea of water vapor and the therapeutic Jesus. So those are actually just cues for me to remember the examples here. So I read an article probably 10 years ago. <laughs> I read an article probably 10 years ago that, uh, where there was a lady that lived in an apartment and water vapor showed up uh, formed on her, her bedroom window, and it was the face of Jesus. And um, a news crew came out and was filming it and, and everything. And the, the quote in the, uh, that, uh, that stuck in my mind was, she said, to me, this is so encouraging because Jesus appeared to me in my window and said, you're not Christian, that's okay, I love you anyway right? So what did she do? She just took God's word and threw it out the window. And if she wanted to pull something encouraging from it, then she would, or she could, I guess. But she took God's word and she threw it out the window because water vapor formed on her her bedroom window, okay? Then the therapeutic Jesus is, I have a relative who called herself an a la carte Christian. She takes the parts she likes and jettisons the parts she doesn't like, right? And so when you have this idea that human beings are the one ones that decide what is true and false, 
and which is ultimately what we're talking about here, then one, that's the sin of the garden, right? That's exactly what was going on in the garden where uh, Adam and Eve wanted to be their own gods is really what it boiled down to. And then they wanted to determine what was right and wrong for themselves. And then secondly, um, you can just believe whatever you want to believe. And in reality, that is the modern, modern era contribution to Christology. Jesus is whoever you want him to be. Okay? So now we're to the new stuff. Um, Sh Frederick Schleiermacher. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, ma'am. things in my head, like what do we do with these? Okay. Um, and some I think are easier than the others. So like when you've got something, like I remember a long time ago, I was long time wrestling over something, fears over something specific, and like I'd be wrestling on my way to church, mm -hmm. and then at church would be a specific song that met mm -hmm. that fear, right. or a lesson that met that fear, mm -hmm. um, and I was like, that was from God. So okay. there's one. Mm -hmm. There's another one that's, um, you know, where you feel like, or a name pops into your head, and mm -hmm. you're like, that's a completely random person I haven't thought of mm -hmm. in forever. I'm going to pray for that person. Mm -hmm. Or, like, um, you feel, pro you walk by a stranger, or you're on an airplane, and you just feel feel specially prompted to converse with that person or right, right. to give food to this person you pass on the street. Like, you just really feel like if I don't, like, I'm almost sinning because I right. really feel like I'm supposed to do that. Like, what do, mm -hmm. you, what do you say to those things? Well, that, and that's a great question. So we can make it a little more general. Um, what we're talking about here is conveying knowledge, right? None of the things that you said, would you, that the examples that you gave, first of all, would you say that they were a truth claim, right? Is something that you would proclaim to somebody else, saying. But like it's different from saying God told me to do Yes, that's very different, right? Now, a, a name popping in your head, I, I, honestly, I don't know where those names come from, God could pop that name in your head, right? Um, but, so you're going to pray for them. Well, guess what? You probably should have been praying for them anyway. You know, that would be a very biblical notion. In terms of helping people on the street, you need to be helping people on the street anyway, right? And so, kind of what we're talking about with mysticism is not saying that the Spirit pushes, you know, kind of nudges us one way or another. Um, it's It's not... I'm not trying to deny that, although we do have to be careful with our claims, right? But what I am saying is that we're not going to, we're not going to receive anything from the Spirit outside of His Word that we proclaim as, as truth. Does that make sense? Right? And so you can take encourage, that, like that song, if that song is encouraging, let's say that's a gift from God. You know, if it, you know, assuming it should be encouraging, you know. Um, so I, I, th I think like that as well, you know. Um, it's just a matter of, we, ha we just have to be careful 
with when we either teach that or proclaim that. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. I would just build on what you're saying. I mean, yeah. if that, if that, uh, if if that, are those things always line up with mm -hmm. good according to scripture? Right. By all means. Yeah. You know, where we get into trouble is when we try to discern: is this the will of God yeah. or not? Um, yeah. You know, people do that all the time in relationships. They're, yeah. They're in a relationship with somebody they shouldn't be in a relationship mm -hmm. with. They're con contemplating marriage when marriage really should be off the table for both parties. Right, right. But they sense the will of God at mm -hmm. play, and they use that revelation right. as tr trumping what Scripture clearly says. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I just think if we if we go too far with that, mm -hmm. we can quickly get into yeah. either frustration trying to discern the will of God. Right. When when Scripture doesn't speak either right. place, right? Because God doesn't. I don't believe necessarily that God is going to answer our questions about yeah. things. And part of the the life in Christ is struggling with those mm -hmm. things and living right. with the consequences. Yep, absolutely. Be so, both good and bad. Go, yep. Both good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Frederick Schleiermacher, um, he is particularly notorious in my mind. He reinterpreted religion in terms of a feeling of absolute dependence on the world spirit. What's the world spirit? That pantheism thing, right? Um, he called it God. Now, he, pro he said he is actually um, who we refer to as the father of liberal theology. And liberal theology, again, it's not a political thing. It's, um, uh, it's a theological position of, I think you can boil it down to rejecting God's word um, or rejecting the authority of scripture, I'll, I'll say. And so he spent his life studying and interpreting scripture, but he just did it from his own starting point rather than the starting point, which is evident in the, in the Bible. So he presented Jesus as the ideal in whom this God consciousness reached its apex. And he also revised the sinlessness of Christ as the gradual yet complete submission of his self-consciousness to his God consciousness. Is that the worst gobbledygook you've ever heard in your life, right? But this guy is so influential, so influential. And it's, he, um, yeah, he's, he's kind of a, a turning point where, you know, after him, you get a lot of folks going off in that direction, you know. Around that time, you're going to have, you know, Dar Darwinism popping on the scene, which was a big blow to Christianity. Yeah, or, and it, was, it started presenting bar barriers. Um, and so after Schleiermacher, it was like most academics went kind of the, the liberal route. Rudolf Boltman... Um, he's 20th century. He uh, erected a dichotomy between the historical Jesus of Nazareth and the what he calls the charismatic Christ of faith, and that's the charismatic Christ is is the uh, the gospel, the the version that um, was preached, um, you know, that the apostles replicated. He asserted that the the former was relatively unimportant, and the latter was what really mattered for the church. He said, I do indeed think that we I do indeed think that we can know uh, 
now know almost nothing concerning the life and personality of Jesus, since the early Christian sources show no sign, uh, so, so show no interest in either, and are moreover fragmentary and often legendary. Boltman taught that the charismatic Christ of faith, the one who was preached by the first disciples, is the product of the early Christian community and is covered with mythology. This means that the church must engage in demythologizing or removing the mythological elements so as to recover the deeper existential meaning of the New Testament portrait of Jesus. Now, let's say you do that. What are you left with? Yeah, yeah. Thomas yeah, Thomas Jefferson or Marcion, right? So you're, you're left with that version of the Bible, but what are you left with in your life? Where's the hope, man? You know? What is, what is that? And so this guy, he was a university professor, but he also, quote-unquote, preached sermons, which can you imagine somebody with this worldview, anti-supernatural, Walking up here and preaching a sermon on Matthew? No. Where's your authority? Where's the authority? Where's the hope? Where's anything worth talking about? And I just said presupposition, and that's Boltman's problem. He did not actually believe in, in the real supernatural. Summary. can't believe it's only three minutes late, so we did it, guys. With regard to Jesus, some modern religions have simply repeated ancient heresies. So, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, what did they repeat? Arianism, otherwise known as adoptionism. Good. Oneness Pentecostals. Modalism, Patrick. Mormons. Mormons are just pagan. So what the modern... What the modern era has contributed is really just a Jesus created in one's own image. And so it's been a dichotomy between the remnant of actually believing who Christ is, seeking who Christ is, and seeking understanding, and then um, and just making Jesus out to who you want it to be. And the vast majority, the vast majority of so-called churches um, basically are the former, I'm sorry, the latter, not the former. And that's a sad, sad commentary, right? Any questions? I love these last four weeks, guys. I don't know if y'all did or not, but I thought that was a lot of fun. So cool. Um, George, you mind closing us? Sure. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for uh, today, a time when we can gather as your church and be taught the word of God. Lord, we're dependent on the spirit who lives in us to reveal the real truth, and we're uh, thankful for that. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, pray and engage with, um, with the lost world uh, according to our, how we would love them and, uh, and humbly do so. We thankful, uh, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir.